0: But you see then, once we are up against this possibility that the distinction between what we do and what happens to us is obliterated. And therefore we would say with Hindus and Buddhists that if I run into a catastrophe it is my karma. You see that means far more than that it is a punishment for something I did wrong in the past. That is a legalistic view of karma. But a naturalistic or organic view of karma is in fact that what happens to me is what I do. And that in a certain sense, uh, I want what happens to me. We can use want, notice how we use this word. It means to desire and it means to lack or to need. We say to somebody, you're wanting, you're deficient in something that you need. So it's rather alarming, really, when you consider it, that uh, you always get what you want, invariably. Even though you may think that it's entirely opposed to your wishes. But if it's your karma, everything that happens to you, put it in another way, everything that comes to you is a return to you of what goes out of you. Yes, obviously, that's absurd. If you confine the definition of yourself to your voluntary conscious behavior. That's a ridiculous definition of oneself. Oneself, self, by any stretch of the imagination, must involve far more than the conscious and voluntary aspects of our behavior. And if we see that it involves intimately and inescapably the behavior of what we call the other, the not-self, the environment, and see that these two are moving together like the two sides of the snake when it swims, then you get a very curious feeling. and You have to be careful of it, if you've got a Western background. Because, and this is what happens to a lot of people who play around with psychedelic chemicals, there are many many cases of inflation among these people. That is to say, When you get this sensation, that the two sides of the world, the inside and the outside, are moving together, you may think, I am ruling it. I am God in the western sense of the word. Therefore, your ego, instead of being, as it were, integrated and uh, transcended with all this process, merely assumes vast dimensions has megalomania, is blown up by the mystical experience. And so you get the holier-than-thou people going around who seem to think that they're above all human conventions and uh, have no obligations to anyone or anything because they're divine and they can do as they damn please. What they haven't realized is that doing as you will isn't a new kind of behavior that you suddenly put on and say from now on I'm going to go around doing as I will you have to realize first that that's what you've always been doing and you could look at this from a very simple point of view It's not a complete point of view but you can say well now what about the people who who did good and who did the things that they didn't want to do. You know, everybody's mother said to us, "'Darling, sometimes we have to do things we don't like.'" Well, what about that? Well, you can always say, the kid obeyed the mother and did the thing that it didn't like because that was the better part of wisdom. In other words, if he hadn't done that, something worse would have happened, and we choose the lesser of two evils. And when you find yourself in a situation where you have to choose the lesser of two evils, Then you say, I want out of here. And you take the easiest way, you take the line of least resistance. So that's your doing. Now, uh, you, you can pursue that more profoundly when you stop thinking about human behavior as something that responds to the compulsion of an environment. And you can get out of that when you see the behavior of the environment as an essential aspect of you. So it isn't, as it were, the environment starting something which you are therefore compelled to follow. It's the whole system moving together. So then, you get in the state of liberated or mystical consciousness, you very often feel that a hill is lifting you up as you walk up it. The ground seems to heave beneath your feet and up you go. And you get this strange feeling of lightness, of effortlessness. Walking on air, never a care, you know? This uh, wonderful sense that there are no obstructions anywhere. There's nothing, as it were, banging you and making you do that. It all flows together. And that's a very common sense. And that's, you are actually, uh, in, in that state of consciousness, you are perceiving the goings-on, uh, the Tao, the course of nature, in the way it's happening. But in the ordinary way, you've been conditioned to resist it, to fight it, and to use those sensations of resistance to create a sensory basis for what you describe as the ego. The ego, in practice, is a sense of strain. When you are aware of I, you are aware of a basic discomfort, which is located basically between the eyes, somewhere in here a sort of tightness. Also, it's in other centers too, it's uh, in the solar plexus, and uh, there are various physical centers, in other words, where this constant tension or resistance against it is going on. And that's what you feel when you talk about I. When that tension ceases, you discover immediately that the separate ego has disappeared. And that what I refers to is simply the total panorama of experience, everything that's happening. That's I. And obviously I don't know all of it, because I can't inspect all of it with my radar, with my conscious attention. That would be a ridiculous undertaking, to know everything in that sense. We know it in a much better way, as we know how to grow hair and open and close our hands. So, this point of view can be understood if we clarify the initial problems we have about it. And I suppose the first problem is if we accept the notion that everything that happens to us is our own karma, our own doing, then we have to be very careful of, shall we say, the devil of omnipotence, of inflation, of uh, feeling that your ego is what is in control of all this and the second thing is if you think then that everything that happens to everybody is what they really want to happen then you can absolve yourself from any qualms about being unkind to someone because you could say well the unkindness i did you was what you really wanted wasn't it you know that business about (coughs) the responsibility of the person who gets murdered for getting murdered, Uh, there is a curious sense in which a lot of people go around looking for trouble. Uh, Freud pointed out, quite correctly, uh, the psychology of accident-prone individuals. They seem to be attracting trouble like lights attract moths. And we're all doing that, but we manage to remain unconscious of it. so that we can praise and blame and play the game which says, that's not my fault, that's your fault. And so we go around apportioning faults to everybody. Because if we're going to apportion praise for what the good things people do, you can't make praise mean anything unless you also go around blaming. Praise and blame go together. Supposing everybody was acting in a praiseworthy way, And we praised everybody for everything. They'd get tired of it. They wouldn't even notice it anymore. So, so long as you're going to get a kick out of being praised, you've got to go around blaming too. It's very simple. But if you see the folly of that, that praising and blaming are just (laughs) creating each other, then you don't praise and you don't blame. You just dig the whole thing. And that's why, when we encounter very great sages, you never hear them blame people, and they very rarely praise anyone. You try to start gossip in the presence of such a person, and you make a derogatory comment about someone. It's as if you had thrown a rock into a well and heard no splash. And a funny feeling because that you get no response, you get no agreement. And uh, if you praise somebody, there's also likely nothing to be said except perhaps some remark that of course you're praising the beloved in all its manifestations. And this, this disconcerts some people terribly. I've always noticed that real sages never gossip, never criticize persons, and uh, because they understand so well. The French saying, tout comprendre, c'est tout pardonner, to understand all is to forgive all, uh, is so true if you are experienced in just the ordinary way of dealing with human problems you've been a counselor or psychotherapist or minister or anything like that you very soon get to realize how vastly complicated people are and to see that they really are in the messes they're in not because of anything (laughs) but that's the way it is and you stop blaming people And because you don't blame people, you have open ears and people come and seek your advice. They don't want to come to someone who's a counselor who will ball them out. It's like dentists who simply accept the fact that people really don't take care of their teeth and realize that the job of a dentist is precisely to look after people who can't be bothered to take care of their teeth. (laughs) That's why he's in business. (laughs) So a good dentist doesn't ball his patients out because they didn't do this, that and the other. Just accept it. Same with doctors. They know perfectly well that nobody's going to live by the rules of health. And they're very vague as to what they are. And <laughs> you know, there's every kind of theory about how you ought to live and what is healthy, but they've changed in fashion. And uh, you ought to eat this kind of diet in 1921. By the time it's 1930, they've changed their ideas altogether. And by the time it's 1960, it's back again to a mixture between 1921 and 1894 something like that you see it's always changing so um, while the rules that are not so you see if if they were all absurd it would be easy (laughs) but they're not all absurd there's some truth in it always but nobody's ever quite sure so the function of healers and doctors and so on is just to, to do what can be done to stop the mess getting too messy and they must accept it as that. That's their job. If I were healthy, say to the doctor, I wouldn't need you. So you're in business. Now, what about it then? Uh, We have difficulty in seeing this mutuality of our relationship to the rest of the world because it's contrary to common sense, contrary to the way we've been brought up. And therefore we have what I would call an initial intellectual block to understanding it, quite apart from any emotional blocks or anything of that kind. But obviously we must overcome that intellectual block if we're going to go any further and actually realize and feel this way of life's working in this relationship between what you do and what happens to you. Then the question arises, then what do I do? Do I go around saying to myself all this that's happening to you is what I wanted. I am inside and outside. I am the subjective and I am the objective. And I mean, I mean to go around thinking thoughts about this, so as, as it were to talk yourself into this way of feeling. Well, that's very superficial. Because this new sense of relationship to nature is something much more than an idea See, ecologists and physicists have the idea that this is so. But they, mostly, in their private life and in their ordinary human behavior, are just like other people, who don't feel it, and who feel themselves in a Newtonian billiards game, even though they've gone on to quantum mechanics. So, that there may be a transition from our ordinary way, of feeling how things go on, to the new way, We have to do something other than think because actually thinking is causing the trouble. It is by thinking that we divide the world into separate events and separate things. That is calculus. And Ananda Kumaraswamy once described the life of the liberated being as a perpetual, uncalculated life in the present. And you say, wow, I don't think I could do that. That saying of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, be not anxious for the morrow. The uncalculated life. If God so clothed the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, faithless ones? And I've never met a preacher yet who would uh, really take that up. They all say, well, Of course, that's too hard a saying for most of us. Uh, It's not practical. Everybody has to uh, take thought for the morrow and uh, calculate. Well, at this point, people can go in two directions. There's one class of people who will say, all right, let's live the uncalculated life let's not make any plans. And before you know where they are, they're living in a filthy pad and uh, scrounging around and living on petty thievery and so on. This is the usual thing. This is, uh, got into it the wrong way. The first thing to do is, just as I said, whether you like it or not, and whether you know it or not, the relationship between you and the environment is always one that is harmonious. So in the same way, you are always living the uncalculated life. And you have to find out, first of all, that you're always doing it. And that what you call your calculations uh, and the things you did were funny little rationalizations. In other words, your ego has about as much control over what goes on as a child sitting next to its father in a car with a plastic steering wheel that is turning the car the way daddy drives it. Because, as I pointed out, most of the functions most of the goings-on in you, around you, the circumstances of life have nothing to do with your ego at all. And you don't even know why you make up your mind to do certain things. We know superficially, we have a few ideas. It's like when you uh, enter into a marriage. You have really no control over its outcome, in the ordinary sense of ego control. Uh, you've taken a colossal gamble in which you've involved I- enormous complexes of patterns. And maybe it'll come out all right if you don't interfere with it too much. <laughs> you don't. It's like Oppenheimer said, it's perfectly obvious that the whole world is going to hell. And the only possible way we might stop that happening is not to try to prevent it. You know, all these wars are started out by people who think that they're helping someone. (laughs) (laughs) That it's going to make things better. So, when you begin from the basis, not of saying, I should now live the spontaneous and improvident and non-calculating style of life. But realize you've always done that. Only you rationalized that you didn't. You always did what you wanted to do. Basically. Only you said sometimes it was my duty. But you preferred a conception of yourself as someone who always does his duty. That flattered you. And so you were still following your own way. Now the first thing then is to see that. that That's what's happening. So that you don't think, well now there is some special thing I have to do to understand this harmonious relationship between the individual and the world. Because if you work on it that way you will start from the presupposition that that relationship doesn't already exist and has to be brought into being thing is, it doesn't have to be brought into being. It's there. But now when you see that that's so, it obviously starts to make a difference. You do behave in a different way. But the behavior, the new kind of behavior that is a result of a transformation, is not forced behavior. When you try to imitate the way a saint behaves, You have made a forced change, and you know all forced behavior is phony. It's like someone saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, when you don't. You feel you ought to, but you you don't really. And there's something, it doesn't ring true. Or think of the poor Lord, listening to all the prayers of all those people saying, I love you, Jesus, and and he knows they don't. (laughs) They're just saying this because they think they ought to. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> be very trying. <laughs> so, whenever you do a thing like that, you see, you, you, you make a forced change. Now, if the change is to happen in the same way that a seed, at proper season, breaks open and sends up a shoot, see, it comes from the whole force of life itself. Now when you see that without your having to do anything, you see, you are living the uncalculated life and you're only pretending you're calculating it and arranging it, then, as it were, you will have a grasp of the total situation. And it will, you can allow it to produce changes in action which are not forced. So, this is why there is always a trend in every kind of spiritual doctrine which says something about grace, divine grace. There must come about something in you, a change, which you can't produce. And if you try to produce it, you will be a victim of spiritual pride. But on the other hand, all teachers are universally saying you've got to make an effort. There's some discipline, there is some something you must do. Well that's the only way to get it across to people that you as a separate effort-maker are a myth, are a phantasm, because if you really try to control your mind and only think the thoughts that you think are good thoughts to think, you will find that you're going around in a circle. Krishnamurti is awfully good at pointing this out. When he, people ask him, how do you meditate? He says, why do you want to meditate? Why are you concentrating? Why are you saying prayers? Why do you think you should believe in God? And it always comes up because I'm just a son of a bitch. I mean, I'm out for my own good and this seems to be the, be the way. So, he says, you see, you don't have any genuine love at all, it's all fake. And so you have to find, first of all, where the genuine love is. Now, you love you, don't you? That's genuine. We won't argue about that. But then, when you start from this, I gave a talk some time ago to um, the Air Force. There are <laughs> A lab where they make weapons, do all the research. And they got a bunch of us there who were ministers and philosophers, and they had the nerve to ask us what was our basis for moral behavior, personal moral behavior. Well, I said, My basis for moral behavior is pure selfishness. <laughs> and uh, I'm talking, after all, to realistic people here and I don't think we need to be sentimental and beat about the bush. After all you're all warriors and fighters and so on and uh, you know how rough things are. So um, uh, I'm going to say to you frankly uh, I'm out for me. But of course I don't do it in a tactless way. (laughs) I don't go around and hit people over the head and say give me this give me that. i much more subtle. I say the good manners and please and uh, how nice you all are and so on and finally uh, people feel uh, massaged psychologically <laughs> into the state where they'll give. <laughs> but then I said after that there's some things that bother me. The first one is, if I love me, what do I want? And furthermore, who am I? Because if I'm going to be realistic about getting what I want, I've got to be pretty sure what it is that's me and what is the state of desire in me. If I am desire, see, if I am a center of desire, what's it all for? Well, I think of all the things I want. But well, it so turns out that none of them are me. Even when I say I want dinner, that doesn't mean I'm going to eat me up. If I'm... Any pleasure I can think of is the enjoyment of something that I hadn't thought of defining as myself. Because I like my sensations, I like what happens to my body when I take a fine wine and down it. But then what's the difference between my body and the wine? If I say I like the wine, I also mean I like me and the wine together, the mixture. But then I don't eat You, or a friend, or a lover, in the same way as I drink wine. I live in association and like this. But then I'm loving things that aren't formally supposed to be me. And as I go into it, in other words, as I investigate what I mean by me, I find that I can't put any limits on it. That I cannot experience me without you. Or without the other. They're inseparable. But you don't find this out until you investigate it. Until you really go into the question, what do I want? And that's the most important investigation anyone can make, which I'm going to into in the next session. Uh, the question of power. And all these military men, you think they, they think they want power. And so I said to them some very subversive and undermining things. Uh, without anybody knowing it until long after I'd left.
1: (laughs) This concludes Session 1 of Do You Do It or Does It Do You? with Alan Watts. Our program continues with Session 2.
0: a cardinal feature of the Buddha's doctrine is that craving is the root of suffering, but craving going further back to another root which is ignorance. Avidya in Sanskrit means lack of vision. Video in Latin is I see and uh, that's related back to the Sanskrit vidya avidya, unseeing, unconsciousness lies behind craving and this in its turn lies behind suffering and of course uh, when we in the West first heard about this we interpreted the idea in a very crude way which is this that um, all one's disappointments are the result of frustrated desire. And, uh, but it's a very much more subtle point of view than that. To understand Buddhism in any case, you must realize that it is not something like a teaching, as we ordinarily understand a system of teaching. It isn't simply a way, uh, as we have in our universities, of a teacher imparting you certain authoritative information which when you've heard it you've got the message. It's a dialogue. It's a a situation in which the teacher doesn't really have anything to tell you. He's simply reacting to your own bringing up of problems. And it's as if people came to the Buddha and said, Sir, uh, we suffer terribly and what are we going to do about that and he replies is it not true that you suffer because you desire they said well maybe that makes sense All right, he said see if you can do without desire and all those students go away and see if they can calm their desires they come back and say this is pretty difficult because uh, we're animal beings and we have all these appetites to begin with and then beyond that, we're in the unfortunate position of being aware of time, being aware of the future. And although it's advantageous to know about the future, in the long run it's depressing, because we all know that we come to a bad end, and that there everything falls apart in time. That would be especially true if you lived under the influence of Indian cosmology, where the world is re- regarded as a process that begins beautifully but as it goes on it gets worse and worse till it destroys itself. Then there's a long period of rest and it starts out again beginning beautifully but getting worse and worse all the time. Everything runs down in time according to that cosmology. And so there seems to be a fundamental futility, desire, desire for whatever it is that you want. Behind this, the intention of studying desire, seeing whether one can discipline desire, whether one can curb it, is a deeper question altogether, which is, what do you desire? What makes you itch? What sort of a situation would you like? Let's suppose I do this often in vocational guidance of students. They come to me and say, well, Uh, We're getting out of college, and we haven't the faintest idea what we want to do. So I always ask the question, what would you like to do if money were no object? How would you really enjoy spending your life? Well, it's so amazing, as a result of our kind of educational system, crowds of students say, well, we'd like to be painters, we'd like to be poets, we'd like to be writers, but as everybody knows, you can't earn any money that way. Or another person says, well, I'd like to live an out-of-doors life and ride horses. I say, do you want to teach in a riding school? Uh, let's go through with it. What do you want to do? When we finally got down to something which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, you do that. And, uh, forget the money. Uh, because if you say that getting the money is the most important thing, You will spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living, that is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is you can eventually turn it, uh, you could eventually become a master of it. It's the only way to become a master of something, to be really with it. And then you'll be able to get a good fee for whatever it is. <laughs> so uh, don't, don't worry too much, that, that's, uh, everybody's, uh, somebody's interested in everything. And anything you can be interested in you'll find others who are. But it's absolutely stupid to spend your time doing things you don't like in order to go on spending things you don't like, doing things you don't like, and to teach your children to follow in the same track. See, what we're doing is we're bringing up children and educating them to live the same sort of lives we're living, in order that they may justify themselves and find satisfaction in life by bringing up their children, to bring up their children to do the same thing, so it's all wretch and no vomit. It never gets there. And so, therefore, it's so important to consider this question, what do I desire? Well, when we answer that question in a naive way, we figure out that we want a desire, uh, what we want is to control everything, to create girls that don't grow old, apples that don't rot, clothes that never wear out, Conveyances that get from one place to another instantly so we don't have to wait. Power available to do anything that you could conceive and do it just instantly like that. To get this funny technological omnipotence. But if you take time out to think about that, and really go into it with your full strength of imagination, and find out whether that's where you want to be, you will soon see that's not what you want. Because the moment you have a situation where you are really in control of things, that is to say, in which the future is almost completely predictable. You will see, as I said last night, that a completely predictable future is already the past. You've had it. and That's not what you wanted. You want a surprise, and you don't know what that's going to be, because obviously it wouldn't be a surprise if you did. You want a pleasant surprise, but like you say, what sort of a surprise would be pleasant? And you can't really answer that, because you know if there are to be such things as pleasant surprises, there must also be unpleasant surprises, there must be rude shots. So you're like somebody taking a one of those wishing well boxes, you know, tubs, you know, where you fish in and you bring out a package. And you don't know whether you've got a dead rat in it or a new camera. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way, that's, that seems to be the thing that really excites people. But quite certainly there comes out of this inquiry a feeling of real disillusionment with the ideal of power. To be in power, to be in control, is not something that any sensible person wants. Imagine the situation of Big Brother, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover, Heinrich Himmler. To be glued, day and night, to a highly defended office with telephones, television screens, watching, peeking, spying on everyone and anything, getting all this information together. Why? You could never leave the office. I mean, the people, character, I suppose, like J. Edgar Hoover, goes home in the evening and, uh, but when he's back home, you know, there are guards sitting outside the door, there's that hotline telephone going to something, uh, he's always having to be in control, and he can't take any time off, he can't uh, go for a walk in the park with a friend, or go innocently to the movies, or sit down and uh, just relax and have an undistracted party in the baths at Big Sur. (laughs) Yeah, what a pauper this guy is. Completely deprived because he wants to be in control, because he wants power. People are frustrated in love, if you're jilted. There's a natural tendency in a human being to seek power as a substitute. And that's a a very negative thing, it's like having a bad temper. To seek power after you're frustrated in love, you should try and get back on the love beam. Because nobody wants power. Now, you may say that shirking responsibility, that if you were a really responsible person, you would go out for power and try to use power to the best possible advantage, for the benefit of all. All right, what would be the benefit of all? Ask them. What do you want me to do with this power? I'm dictator. What would you like me to do? Well, nobody knows, because they haven't thought it through. They think of all sorts of short-range things and they are largely conflicting and confusing because they're not well thought out. But again, when it finally comes down to it, nobody wants to be God. Now then, when uh, Oriental philosophy and religion was first introduced to the Western world, it was introduced under the auspices of people who were fascinated with power. It was introduced in the latter part of the 19th century when we had heard all about evolution and how the human race was going on to ever greater heights and we would eventually develop Superman, according to Nietzsche or G.B. Shaw, and uh, H.G. Wells. Remember all that early fantasy of where evolution would lead through the development of technology. And so at this time, people like H.P. Blavatsky were talking about the mysterious wisdom of the East. And they phrased it, they commended it to us in a technological spirit. That there was psychic technology. That there was something that you could go way beyond anything that could be done through the physical sciences. You could cause your physical body to disintegrate to another level of vibration, and then transmit it and reassemble it somewhere else. You could live as long as you like because you control the fundamental processes. You could determine, if you decided to die, where you would be reborn, exactly. You would be a complete master of life. And so there are still innumerable books being sold which present oriental philosophy and religion in this light. That uh, charlatan lobsang ramper, who uh, writes about uh, Tibetan mastery. People read that because uh, they, they think that there may be a way of beating the game. So therefore, the wise men of Asia were represented through this kind of propaganda as masters of life, as, for example, people whose emotions didn't bother them, who could put up with any amount of pain by simply turning off their feelings, who could foretell the future, who could read your thoughts, and who were above all kinds of ordinary human frailty. Well, When I first met Buddhist priests, Zen masters, swamis, all these wise men from the East, one of the first things that impressed itself upon me was that they were perfectly ordinary human beings. They had bad tempers, they were fussy about certain things, they uh, just acted as I would expect human beings to act. And so at first I was very disappointed. I thought they had feet of clay, that they didn't come up to these promises of psychotechnology. But after a while I got to realize why not, that they had already thought all that through. They had thought through what might be done if one had all these powers, and had decided that wasn't what they wanted. The powers of this kind in Sanskrit are called Siddhi, S-I-D-D-H-I. But there is hardly one decent scripture or text on yoga that does not say again and again, if you get siddhi, ignore them. Go on to something else. These are only the foothills. These are, furthermore, not only foothills, but they are seductive, blind alleys. Won't take you anywhere at all. Now, I think that this is the greatest possible lesson for the Western world to learn, because we are so hung up on the idea of power, of control, of being able to make everything go the right way, and we've never thought it through. When you get control of it, what are you going to do with it? Supposing I have... A, I'm an alchemist, and I have a whole secret closet full of love filters, very potent ones. If I see a desirable woman, all I have to do is to offer her a cigarette or give her a glass of wine with one of my secret potions in it. And instantly, I'm her master. Now, when I think that through, what would I do with a situation like (laughs) (laughs)
1: that?
0: Because all I've got again is that plastic doll that when I push it, it does what I tell it to and doesn't have any comeback. What you always are looking for in things is where the surprise is there, where there's a comeback. And you say, my God, this thing is alive. It has a will of its own. It is not in my control. And I would like to have a relationship with something like that because it would never be dull. And also, uh, you would feel uh, true affection. Uh, After all, yeah, you, you can make love to yourself in a mirror. You can uh, have a, one of those Dutch wives. You buy them in a place in Kobe where you get these rubber girls that you fill with hot water. <laughs> and uh, sailors take them on long voyages. But what an awful thing, you know, when you realize that this thing has no gear, uh, no surprise in it, no thing that it does on its own, you see. And so when you think things through like that, you understand you do not want power. You don't want to control everything. And therefore, these Zen Buddhist masters that I met and others were not super-occultists. And very many Westerners who visited Japan expecting to get a, a Satori as a result of which they would know everything and control everything, were grievously disappointed and said there's not much in this after all. So therefore, from uh, the standpoint of Buddhism, the fact that the power game is not the game is expressed by saying a Buddha is one who has gone beyond the gods because the gods have power. The Buddhism imagines all kinds of levels of heaven worlds inhabited by all kinds of gods. And the supreme of all the gods is called Ishvara. But it is said that all those gods in their paradisal worlds are in samsara. They're in the round of birth and death. And what goes up must come down. They're immensely successful. They're at the peak of power, spiritual power they're not delivered yet because they still don't know what they want. And therefore in the exploration of what you want, you get to the point where having all pleasures at your command, and they pall, and you think of new sources of pleasure. And eventually you get like the ancient Romans who had all these mad crowds of barbarians who had to go every Saturday to the Colosseum for a show that really had to surpass everything because they had public baths, they had prostitutes, they had every kind of luxury. But when they went to see one of the big shows that people like Nero put on, they would have, for example, floats circling the Colosseum, all full of slave girls from distant parts of the Mediterranean, garlanded with flowers and waving at the crowd and going innocently around. And the next minute they would release wild lions into the arena to eat up all the slave girls. They got a big sadistic kick out of that. Because, you see, pursuing pleasure beyond a certain place, takes you into what the Buddhists call the Naraka world, that is to say, the hells. When you have explored pleasure to its ultimate limit, the only thing you can get a kick out of is pain. So naturally, you descend from the Deva world, at the top of the wheel, to the Naraka world at the bottom, where it shows all these beings in, in states of torture. Now, of course, the the priests say, uh, when they're bringing up children, if you do bad things, you will end up in the hell world. But this is a very uh, inadequate way of showing how one gets to the hell world. You get to the hell world as a result of not knowing what you want. As a result of thoughtless pursuit of pleasure, which ends you eventually in the pursuit of pain. So, when you're in the hell, well, that's where you want to be. So then the question is, uh, to clarify once more, what do we want? If you understand, first of all, that you don't want absolute power, you don't want absolute control, you want, yes, some control, Do you see, we always love controlling something that's not really under our control. Remember I gave you the illustration right in the beginning of holding a gyroscopic top and feeling sometimes you're with it but sometimes it's alive under your hand. And this sensation too, you often get, say, in driving a car or something like that, it's more or less under your control but on the other hand it isn't. And that's the, the beautiful thing because when something is partly under your control, but isn't. Then you have the same sort of relationship with it that you have when you have someone you love, some other person. They are partly under your control because they've agreed to live with you and go along with you and so on, but also they're not. And the measure to which they're not is the measure to which they seem really alive to you. So then, we ask the question, uh, if the motivation of power gaining disappears. You've seen through it and you know that's not what you want. What other motivation takes its place as the origin of actions? And it seems to me that the answer here is compassion. Simply because When you want to relate to another living being, what you really are asking of them is that they be in the same situation that you are. You want to meet and encounter someone else who has your problems, your fears, and your delights. You don't want a doll, you want another you, another self. Because that would be at least as surprising to you as you are. And so then, at once, that, that when you see that that is the case, and that the most interesting thing in the world is the, the relationship with these others, and you can see at once yourself in the situation of all the other people, and then you think, no, I don't want to control these people. I would like them, yes, to be controlled in the sense that they were happy, to do the things I would like them to do. But obviously, I can't force that, because if I forced it, they wouldn't be happy. See, when you marry someone, when you have a family, you want your children, you want your relatives, you want your wife, etc., to be happy to do the things for you that they do. And so we say to each other, um, would you like to bring the washing in? And very often the answer is no,
1: <laughs> but I will. <laughs>
0: because, you see, we put it that way, because we always hope that the things that we do for each other will be pleasurable to both sides. So a school teacher will get up in class and says, What nice boy will clean the blackboard for me? All these ways we use of trying to get voluntary cooperation, willingly given help, that's what we look for. But there is, despite the lot of foolishness that goes on, this is a sound thing, you see, that there really is no greater satisfaction that you can imagine than that kind of personal relationship wherein you can trust a being who is other than you and not under your control to do for you what you want because they like it as you, on your side would want to do something for them in that way And so as to give pleasure to the other person. Let's take in in, in sexuality, where you get a kind of a critical example of this. The biggest fun in sexual relationships is giving orgasm to women. And if that doesn't happen, uh, many men feel disappointed. Because the thing that they really wanted to do was to give pleasure and get their own pleasure out of giving it. Now, that's compassion, in the real sense of the word, feeling with and through someone else. Where the whole trick is that you lose control for a while of the situation and say, I throw the ball to you, now it's yours. Now, I may seem, therefore, as a result of talking in this way, to be talking like a Jewish or a Christian theologian. Because that's what they say about God. That God did something called kenosis in the beginning of all time. Kenosis is a Greek word meaning self-emptying, self-sacrifice, giving up. And thereby conferred freedom of will and the power to love on angels and human beings. And therefore took a terrific risk by trusting the other, by trusting a principle called other that's not under your control. And uh, with God, of course, it is ultimately under his control, but he sits back and smokes a cigar sometimes and uh, lets it go, see what the children will do. <laughs> 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 you know, like DeLorn in Green Pastures, a big cigar. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> but uh, you see, it's really in a way the same idea as the Hindu idea when the Christian speaks of God giving the creature freedom of will, the Hindu says, no, God gets lost in that person and gives up power. And it's it's really the same thing, it's the the idea that the all-powerful surrenders power. So that uh, the more you give the power away, what you're really doing is you're othering yourself. Now the more you other yourself by giving power away, the more of a self you are, because self and other are reciprocal. So you find that people who through a sadhana, a yoga discipline, have overcome their ego, have transcended the ego, are tremendously strong personalities. You would think, theoretically, they would all be non-entities. And to lack entirely what psychologists call ego strength. But actually they're nothing of the kind. They are, every one of them, unique. They're all quite different from each other. And they are very, very, uh, what I would call, strong characters because the more they have given it up, the more they get it. So, I- in, in this way of thinking, let's put it in another dimension for the moment. Let's suppose we, we are thinking of a relationship that is not just a people. People are very obviously other and independent. Of one's ego. But give it to everything. Say to everything, which in course is going to include as much of of yourself as you can objectivize. In other words, your stomach, your intestines, your everything, see? Say to it all, now it's your turn. Let's see what you're going to do. Let it happen. You know, you, you do this complete let off of control. And you find that you, you let's, I, I have to put it in a provisional way first. You get the sensation that, the, the, that everything else is living you, it lives you. that you've given away control, you see, to everything else. It's a lovely irresponsible state to be in.
1: This concludes CD number 2 of Do You Do It or Does It Do You with Alan Watts. Our program continues with CD number 3.
0: But then, you see, you, you, you do the flip. In giving away the control, you got it. You got the kind of control you wanted. That's to say, where you had a loving relationship to the world, but you didn't have to make up your mind what it should do, you let it decide. Now, do you see that's how your bodies work? You don't have to make up your mind what your nerve cells are going to do. You've delegated all that authority. If the president of the United States has to lay awake at nights thinking what every official under his command is going to do, he can't be president. He's got to make an act of trust in all those subordinates to be responsible and carry on their things in just the same way as you make an act of trust to all your subordinate organs to carry on their functions without you having to tell them what to do. And this is the secret of what we will call organic power as distinct from political power. Lao Tzu puts it in this way, the great Tao flows everywhere, both to the left and to the right. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. And when merits are accomplished, it lays no claim to them. The more, therefore, you relinquish power, trust others, the more powerful you become. But in such a way that instead of having to lie awake nights, Controlling everything, you do it beautifully by trusting the job to everyone else. And they carry it on for you. So you can go to sleep at night and trust your nervous system to wake you up in the morning. You can even tell it, I want to wake up at six o'clock, and it'll wake you up just like an alarm clock. This seems a sort of paradox to say this, but the principle of unity of coming to a sense of of oneness with the whole of the rest of the universe is not to try to be, obtain power over the rest of the universe. That will only disturb it and uh, antagonize it and make it seem less one with you than ever. The way to become one with the universe is to trust it as another, as you would another, and say, Let's see what you're going to do. But in doing that, you see, in saying that to everything else that you have been taught to think is not you, you are also saying it to yourself. Because finally, as I pointed out, you do not know where your decisions come from. They pop up like hiccups. And when you make a decision, people have a great deal of anxiety about making decisions. See, so this guy, who a um, farmer, who ordered a help man to come in and uh, found he was an extraordinarily efficient worker. Because the first day he put him on sawing logs. And he sawed more logs than anybody had ever sawed. It was fantastic. But it was all done in one day. So the next day, he put him, on, put him on to mending fences. And there were all kinds of broken fences around the farm, and in one day, he had the whole thing done. So he thought, what am I going to do with this guy? So he took him down into a basement and said, look, here are all, la- uh, all the potatoes that have come in from this harvest, and I want you to sort them into three groups. Those that we sell, those that we use for seeding, and those that we throw away. So, he left him at that. At the end of the day, the laborer came back and said, Well, that's enough, mister. I quit. Oh, he said, You can't quit. I've never had such an excellent worker. I'll raise your salary. I'll do anything to keep you around here." Ah, I said, No. It's all right mending fences and chopping wood, but this potato business is decision after decision after decision after decision.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <coughs> so, when we decide, we're always worrying, Did I think this over long enough? Did I take enough data into consideration? And if you think it through, you find you never could take enough data into consideration. The data for a decision in any given situation is infinite. So what you do is, you go through the motions of thinking out what you will do about this. And then when the time comes to act, you make a snap judgment. I mean, I'm speaking a little extremely, uh, making some fun of it, and uh, so on, because after all, uh, we we do occasionally get the vague outlines of things and make a right decision on rational grounds. But we fortunately forget the variables that could have interfered with this coming out right. It's amazing how often it works. But warriors are people who think of all the variables beyond their control and what might happen. So then, when you make a decision, and it works out all right, I think very little of it has much to do with your conscious intent and control. but somehow or other you are able to decide and control things more harmoniously if you delegate authority. That's why very great businessmen are those who can delegate authority, trust others to work for them, because those are people developing businesses on the same basic structure That is fundamental to a living organism. Delegation of authority. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. And you see, then, what is happening is this. The more you let go of it and trust it, as if it were quite other than you. The more you realize the inseparable identity of self and other. To go back, if you try to find the identity of self and other by subjecting other to self, no go. If, on the other hand, you you find it through giving self, that is control, over to other and trusting that, you may make a mistake, you may make a bad gamble, But in the long run, you're acting on a principle which has the backing of evolution. This is the way biological evolution goes on. Constant delegation of authority. That's why, obviously, the democracy is superior to the monarchy. It was de Tocqueville who said that democracy is always right but for the wrong reasons because there is operating in a democracy the principle that Buckminster Fuller calls synergy. And synergy is the intelligence of a highly complex system, the nature of which is always unknown to the individual members. Because that goes back again to this point, that we're always entering a new environment, We don't ever know fully what the new environment is because the only environments we know are the past ones. There is always then operating in uh, the development of cellular life on any level a new way of organization higher than any existing form (coughs) and we are not aware of it until after it's happened. If you ever saw, for example, the film Contiki, Uh, this man figured out a few things as to how to make a balsa wood raft to sail from South America to the Pacific Islands. But once he had set this in motion, he discovered that all sorts of unexpected factors cooperated with him. That when the wood got wet, it expanded so that the ties bit into it and held it completely secure. He had never expected that. And he found that as he sailed along a flying fish would simply al- alight flat on the deck every morning for breakfast. <laughs> that all kinds of natural factors, it was just, he had touched a key where he was flowing with the course of nature and everything cooperated with him. Because he had touched the key, he had made the act of faith. And he was just picking up, in other words, a practice which had been Uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago had been followed by others who had worked it out by their great ecological awareness. So we do come out of this uh, way of of thinking to something which has, I, I would say, the most enormously creative and revolutionary social consequences. That it has become not virtuous, not self-sacrificing, not anything like that. It has become the hardest practical politics to let go control to others, to give up trying to dominate the scene. also in a parallel way it has become at this time in our history very much hard practical politics to learn how to enjoy ourselves you can go to the protestant people with their protestant ethic who uh, are against this kind of thing and now say to them with great glee it is your solemn duty to learn how to enjoy yourself. Why? Because in an age of leisure people have really got to know how to enjoy themselves. Because if they don't, they'll smash the whole future of the human race. So uh, a utopia has become Uh, not some sort of a dream, but an urgent necessity. We can't do without it. (laughs) Because if we try to do without it, what's going to happen is that we are going to terminate our race in a mutual massacre of scapegoats. And so the, the present paranoia in the United States that is going on where everybody is thinking up a new scapegoat and how great it will be to demolish them or get them out of power. All all this kind of bickering and uh, right and left politics has become irrelevant because we now have the opportunity of uh, trusting our own intelligence Our own technology. To take the risk of doing what we want. Which will work. To the extent that we realize that what I want, basically, what I really want is what you want. And I don't know what you want. (laughs) Surprise me. But that's my, that's the kinship between I and thou. So, when I ask, I go right down to the question, which we started with, what do I want? The answer is, I don't know. When Bodhidharma was asked, who are you, which is another form of the same question, he said, I don't know, planting flowers to which the butterflies come. Bodhidharma says, I know not. I don't know what I want. Well, when you don't know what you want, you've re- reached the state of desirelessness. When you really don't know. But you see, there's a, there's a beginning stage of not knowing and there's an ending stage of not knowing. In the beginning stage, you don't know what you want because you haven't thought about it. Or you've only thought superficially. Then, when somebody forces you to think about it and go through and say, Yeah, I think I'd like this, I think I'd like that, I think I'd like the other, that's the middle stage. Then you get beyond that. Say, Is that what I really want? In the end, you say, No, I don't think that's it. I might be satisfied with it for a while and I wouldn't turn my nose up at it, but it's not really what I want. Why don't you really know what you want? Two reasons that you don't really know what you want. Number one, you have it. Number two, you don't know yourself because you never can. The Godhead is never an object of its own knowledge. Just as a knife doesn't cut itself, fire doesn't burn itself, light doesn't illumine itself, It's always an endless mystery to itself. I don't know. And this I don't know, uttered in the infinite interior of the spirit, this I don't know is the same thing as I love, I let go, I don't try to force or control, It's the same thing as humility. And so the Upanishads say, if you think that you understand Brahman, you do not understand. And you have yet to be instructed further. If you know that you do not understand, then you truly understand. For the Brahman is unknown to those who know it, and known to those who know it not. And the principle is that any time you, as it were, voluntarily let up control, in other words, cease to cling to yourself, you have an access of power. Because you're wasting energy all the time in self-defense trying to manage things, trying to force things to conform to your will. The moment you stop doing that, that wasted energy is available. And therefore, you are, in that sense, having that energy available, you are one with the divine principle. You have the energy. When you're trying, however, to act as if you were God, that is to say, you don't trust anybody and you're the dictator and you have to keep everybody in line, you lose the divine energy. Because what you're doing is simply defending yourself. So then, the principle is, the more you give it away, the more it comes back. Now you say, I don't have the courage to give it away. I'm afraid. And you can only overcome that by realizing, you better give it away, because there's no way of holding on to it. The meaning of the fact, you see, that everything is dissolving constantly, that we're all falling apart, We're all in a process of constant death. And that uh, the worldly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes or it prospers and like snow upon the desert's dusty face lighting a little hour or two is gone. You know, all that Omar Khayyam jazz. (coughs) You know, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the great globe itself, i all which it inherits, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant fade, it leave not a rack behind. All falling apart. Everything is... That's the the great assistance to you. See That that fact that everything is in decay is your helper. That is allowing you that you don't have to let go because there's nothing to hold on to. (laughs) It's achieved for you, in other words, by the process of nature. So once you see that uh, you just don't have a prayer, and it's all washed up, and that you will vanish and leave not a rack behind. And you really get with that. Suddenly you find you have the power. This enormous access of energy. But it's not power that came to you because you grabbed it. It came in entirely the opposite way. And power that comes to you in that opposite way is power with which you can be trusted. Of course, what we've been talking about is not so much a set of ideas as an experience, or shall we say experiencing, and uh, this kind of seminar in comparison with uh, encounter groups or workshops of various kinds or experiments in sensory awareness is now being called a conceptual seminar, although I'm not talking about concepts. But the crucial question arises that an understanding, a real feeling understanding, of the polar relationship between the individual and the world is something that operates, uh, as we say, in your bones and isn't just a view that you hold or a belief that you hold. It's so curious that the emphasis of the Western tradition in religion is primarily upon right belief. Do you believe in the right dogmas and the right doctrines? And only secondarily, upon right action. Because what you believe is in Christianity at any rate, far more important than what you do. Because one is saved through faith, not by works. And early in its history, the Christian church rejected the movement in the church which had been known as Gnosticism from the Greek Gnosis which means knowledge and in a way there were some sound reasons for doing so because the Gnostics were what I would call anti-materialists they divided human beings into three classes that were called, respectively, pneumatic, psychic, and hylic. The last one being H-Y-L-I-C, from the Greek, hyli, or they would call it now, ili, meaning wood. So the people were spiritual, psychological, And wooden and uh, that is to say the wooden people were those most absorbed in materiality and most closely identified with their bodies and Orthodox Christianity rejected this sort of distinction because of the perfectly correct idea that material existence is not inconsistent with spirituality this is something which most Christians have forgotten but they do believe as the central principle of Christianity in what's called the incarnation that in uh, the Jesus of Nazareth almighty God did in fact become material become human and by this process initiated a transformation of the cosmos. In the words of Saint Athanasius, God became man that man might become God. And you don't hear that from the pulpit very often. The Christian church therefore emphasized pistis or faith as against gnosis or knowledge. Because They said, you can never know God. God could never become an object of knowledge. And in this funny roundabout way, the Christian theologians were saying exactly the same thing as the Hindus. Only the Hindus do call this knowledge of God through faith they call it Gnana, which is the same as the Greek word Gnosis. But just to give you a little sidelight on how words get mixed up in their meanings, we now have a class of person called an agnostic. And uh, an agnostic generally means a person who doesn't commit himself to any beliefs about the ultimate nature of things. He just says he doesn't know. But the original word, agnosia, in Greek, meant a special kind of knowledge. It was called the dark knowledge of God. The knowledge of God in the cloud of unknowing, to use the title of a mystical treatise written by an anonymous 14th century English monk. This monk derived his ideas from a very mysterious figure who wrote under the name of Dionysius the Areopagite. Dionysius was a fifth or sixth century Syrian monk who had learned his mysticism from Porphyry, who got it from Plotinus, who was a Neoplatonist, and who probably got uh, a great deal of stimulation from the intellectual world of Alexandria and Alexandria in the early years of the Christian era was a tremendous exchange place between East and West. Buddhist monks visited Alexandria. It was uh, one of the great centers of trade between Rome and India and as you may know all Rome's gold eventually went to India for the purchase of pepper and uh, as a result of this the Roman economy collapsed. They bought too much luxury from India. India in exchange got Roman architecture and uh, you'll see a lot of Roman architecture in Indian temples. But Alexandria was the great center for the Gnostics and for Christian theology and some of the greatest theologians, Clement, Origen, Athanasius, Saint Cyril, all worked out of Alexandria. Well now going back to this strange monk Dionysius. It was he who first put around the idea in Christian circles that there was such a thing of the knowledge, as the knowledge of God by faith by agnosia, really, by unknowing. And he, in a book which he wrote, a very short book called The Theologia Mystica, he wrote a treatise on the higher knowledge of God which might be quoted directly from the Upanishads in certain parts of it. The last section of it reads like the Mandukya Upanishad because it's a series of negations. It says what God is not. And he goes very far because he says that God is not one. He says our idea of unity falls far short of what God is. So does our idea of Trinity. So does our idea of spirit, our idea of mind, of justice, of love. All these things are not really God. And he says in another place, if anybody, having seen God, understood what he had seen, what he would have seen would not have been God, but some creature of God, less than God, some sort of angel or something like that. It's perfectly amazing to consider the influence that this man had. For writing under the name of Dionysus the Areopagite, he became identified, you see, with St. Paul's first convert in Athens. And legend has it that he was the first bishop of Athens and was martyred in Gaul, where he's known as St. Denis. But St. Thomas Aquinas looked upon the writings of Dionysus the Areopagite as having the highest authority. And you could, if all the texts of Dionysius's work had been lost, you could restore most of it from quotations in St. Thomas. He wrote really two very important books, one was the one I said, the Theologia Mystica, the other was called The Divine Names. And these two books presented the two phases of his theology. The book called The Divine Names was a discussion on the nature of God in terms of what God is like, by analogy. And this kind of knowledge of God he called cataphatic from the Greek phimi, to speak or say, kata, meaning uh, to say according to, that is to say to speak by analogy. Where he used though entirely negative language about God, this sort of discourse was called apophatic. And the word apo meaning away from, to talk away from. Just as a sculptor, when he makes an image, reveals the image by removing stone. And so Dionysus explained that one attains the knowledge of God by discarding concepts. Which is exactly what the Hindus mean when they say, uh, of God one can only say neti, neti, not this, not this. Not any conception. Thus in Hindu philosophy, the highest state of consciousness in samadhi is called nirvikalpa samadhi which means, literally, non-conceptual. Vikalpa means a concept, Nir is a negation. So, the non-conceptual knowledge. Now, people have greatly misunderstood this. They have imagined that unknowing, the state of the highest contemplation, was the acquisition of a blank mind, from which you first discarded thought, You went on to discard perception, you went on to discard any kind of sensory content in awareness, until you were, so far as anyone could say, aware of nothing. And they supposed that this kind of catatonic state was mystical consciousness. This is often believed in India. If you go to the Vedanta society and ask what do you mean by nirvikalpa samadhi, they will tell you that the one in that state has no consciousness whatsoever of the sensory world. That he is completely absorbed as you sometimes see Hindu holy men sitting in a state where they are blind and deaf to everything going on around them. The founder of Chinese Zen, known as Huineng, described people like that as no better than pieces of rock and lumps of wood. He said it's a very serious mistake indeed to confuse sunyata, the Sanskrit word for the great void, which is both the ultimate reality and the consciousness thereof, that it's a great mistake to confuse it with nothingness. It is rather to be thought of as space, or like space, because space is not empty. It contains the whole universe. And so, in the same way, the state of mind of a person who is truly enlightened is not empty. It contains everything. but Like space, it is not stained by what it contains. And it's often said in Zen imagery, you can't hammer a nail into space. You can't spit on the sky and soil it. If you try, the spit will just return and hit your own face. So they go on to say that consciousness in all of us, your basic mind is like space. It is completely pure. But, of course, by purity they don't mean unsexual, which is, of course, what purity generally means in the Western world. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A person who is pure in heart is generally understood as one who never has any naughty thoughts. <laughs> you know what naughty means? It means vain, negative. Empty. A naughty person, therefore, is one who doesn't amount to anything. It's just nothing. That's the real meaning. But uh, this misunderstanding of the nature of contemplation existed not only in India, from which it was transmitted to China, but also in the West. You read many treatises on Western mysticism and there's still the feeling that getting into a deep, deep trance, sometimes called rapture. Again, the word rapture has undergone some transformations. We talk about rapture as people being beside themselves with pleasure. But to be rapt means to be taken away from the body. So also ecstasy, we now interpret as meaning uh, in a state of high pleasure. But it means to be outside yourself, to stand outside yourself. Your soul has left you, it is with God. As Arabs say of all crazy people, be kind to them. They're not here, their soul is with God. But actually, if it can be true, as Buddhists say, that nirvana and samsara are one, and if it can be true, as Christians say, that the spirit can be made flesh, the word can be made flesh, then obviously the highest form of man is not sitting in a trance like a lump on a log with a perfectly blank mind. Because if that were the highest state of consciousness, it would be an exclusive state of mind a state of mind that shuts out life. And in that sense it could not qualify for being what the Hindus call non-dualistic. They always speak of the highest reality as being not one, because one excludes many. Not nothing, because nothing excludes something. Not being, because being excludes non-being, and vice versa. And so they use this word non-dual to mean that which doesn't exclude anything. Which, as it were, has no outside. As we say, space has no outside. You can only have outsides inside space. You can't have any outsides outside space. There is no outside space, even though space may be curved and finite. So, If you want to think, incidentally, of that uh, curved space, go and take a look at a photograph in um, the Life, a book on mathematics, where there's a picture of a Klein bottle, which is a three-dimensional Merbius strip. A Merbius strip, you know, is a piece of paper that is twisted once and then joined. And it has only one side and only one edge. Now, a Klein bottle is a three-dimensional Merbius strip and it only has one inside, it has no outside. You can say it has an inside and no outside, or it has an outside and no inside. It's a fabulous little, little trick. But there's something like that would be the nature of space. Uh, as that which does indeed tr- transcend the opposites. Um, not quite, no. We'd have to do one extra move on a serpent to make it into a Klein bottle. Uh, you'd have to tuck its head through the, ins- through the side of its skin and make the aperture through the mouth continuous with the inside of the serpent towards the tail, you see. <laughs> That's more or less what a Klein bottle is. <laughs> so, uh, what I'm getting to, I'm uh, giving you something out of the general history of religions to show that What has been meant by the mystical state, the state of samadhi or awakening in certain traditions is not this state of trance, but a state of consciousness in which you can perfectly well carry on your daily affairs. And of course what is meant by a bodhisattva as the ideal type of uh, Buddhist person is that he is not wrapped that he is actively engaged in the life of the world. Because he has gone beyond the illusion that nirvana is to be found away from everyday life. So, what is then the point of meditation? Why meditate? Why do you have to crawl off into a hole or go to a Zen monastery or uh, retire and be quiet when this is only a withdrawal? Is there anything to be said for it? Well, meditation is in that that sense, as a practice, as a discipline, is a very curious problem. Because from one point of view it's a help, and from another point of view a hindrance. And I think we have to understand, first of all, that meditation exercises are medicinal rather than dietary. The same could be said of LSD, a medicine, not a diet. Uh, Something that um, is described in Zen as when you want to open a door or summon someone to open the door for you, you pick up a brick and you knock on the door, but you don't carry the brick into the house. When you need a raft for crossing a stream, you cross the stream on the raft, but you leave the raft on the bank at the other side, you don't go carrying it around. But a lot of people when they get into meditation or they get into religion or into um, any kind of exploration of this sort, turn the door into a revolving door and keep on going round and round and round and never get through. They say, what a gas it is to be in this revolving door. So It's a good definition of a parasite. is a person who goes through a revolving door on someone else's push. <laughs> <laughs> So, there are all sorts of people in the religious racket who are uh, going through revolving doors. And they're very bitter about people who walk right through and leave the door behind because they say, well, you haven't paid enough respect. You must really understand religious one-upmanship. It's a tremendously important thing. And don't be caught out by this because what happens is there's a little game going on which I'm going to initiate you into. And it's played in Zen, which is... It it works like this. (laughs) If you go to a teacher and ask for spiritual instruction, or even if you come to a seminar like this, you are, by doing that, confusing yourself because you are looking for what you're asking for outside, as if someone else could give it to you, as if you didn't have it. So, the teacher knows that as long as you do that, you haven't understood. But he doesn't just tell you to go away. We may sometimes uh, just say, go away, I'm too busy. And in any case, I can't tell you anything. Well, people won't take that for an answer. They won't take no for an answer. And furthermore, if he just said go away, they would just find some other teacher who would exploit them and uh, maybe keep them as followers for years and acquire a great deal of money by so doing. What he does is another thing. He tries to give them the put-down as if to say you have a great long distance to go yet your attainment is uh, not at all perfect and uh, where uh, they're always talking about other sects and other schools and saying well they haven't really got the point you see so that you keep losing faith in yourself and uh, feeling my goodness, I haven't yet attained this thing and that keeps you working but all the time you're being talked out it's like someone who's a pickpocket and he's stolen your own watch and is selling it to you But just so long as you can be talked out of yourself, you deserve
1: to be. (laughs)
0: You become very aware of this, if you ever do momentarily slip into some sort of a mystical experience, uh, you become aware of this tremendous gamesmanship going on. Uh, and you see it as sort of continuous with, the, with all sorts of cosmic games that are going on of uh, creatures eating other creatures up and um, the creatures that get eaten transform themselves into the creatures that eat them. And then in turn, uh, eat other creatures. And uh, you, you see the whole hide and seek game going on, and then you realize very clearly that the state of development that you are in now is uh, no better and no worse than anybody else's state. Because it's like uh, space again. Which planet is in, or which star, is in the best position? Well, it's all equal. They're all in the middle. Any one can be considered as the center one. Any point on a sphere is the center of the surface of the sphere. So, in in the same way, everybody, in all his behavior, whatever he's doing, Whether we call him from a certain point of view sick, or whether we call him healthy, whether we call him good or bad, neurotic, normal, psychotic, sane, uh, all the manifestations are just like uh, the leaves on the trees. And uh, in each uh, being in a unique way is, as Christians would say, manifesting the will of God. So, there really, from that point of view, you see, there is nothing to do to attain Buddhahood. Nothing at all. But you see, that's very difficult to understand, because a lot of people, when they hear that there's nothing to do, try to do nothing. (laughs) And you can't. Because you are karma, and karma means action. You can't do nothing. But uh, the thing you're looking for, or think you're looking for, is what you're doing. Is what's called you. Only, of course, as we all know, uh, we've got ourselves into the idea that oneself is so difficult to see. Because it's like, uh, as I've often said, trying to bite your own teeth or look into your own eyes and you can't find it. It's always behind. It's like your head is, uh, from the optical point of view, a blank space. Neither light nor dark. It's right in the middle of everything. And so, one of the great tricks of gurus is to set people looking for their heads. There's a famous story of a king in India in ancient times called Yajnadatta. And one morning he woke up and reached out for his mirror and brought it over. No head. <coughs> he was looking in the wrong side of the mirror. And, you know, he was kind of bleary-eyed and had a hangover. So he summoned servants and said, "Gods, I've lost my head. Find it. And uh, they said, but your majesty, it's there on your shoulders. He said, it is not. I can't see it in the mirror. Nobody can show me my head. So they were rushing all over the place looking for the head. Now the trick to that is, of course, that uh, you are perfectly well aware of your head, only not in a form in which you expect to be aware of it. You expect to be aware of your own head in the same way as you're aware of other people's heads. But that wouldn't be true of you because you've got an inside view on your head. You have an outside view of other people's heads because, of course, you're taking an inside point of view. But the way in which you are aware of your head is in terms of what you are seeing and hearing. Because all sights and all sounds are what the nerves inside your head are doing. That's how to be aware of one's head. You are aware, therefore, of yourself, the mysterious self that you have, in terms of experience. Because there isn't really any difference. But that always escapes people, you see. So perpetually, so long as you don't understand that, you can be talked into going on to all kinds of weird excursions. And just so long as you believe it, you're a sucker, you're hooked. And it takes a tremendous inner confidence and nerve finally to say, don't pull that stunt on me anymore. I I, I see through your game. And, uh, Because gurus are very clever at putting you down. But they're just trying to see how strong you are, testing you out, see if they can hoodwink you. So long as they can, you see, they're going to go on doing it because they're going to get you to the point where they can't do it to you anymore. Then they'll graduate. And so uh, (laughs) one of Rinzai's students after he saw through it, he said, well, there wasn't much in Rinzai's Buddhism after all. Of course there wasn't. He said boldly and straight out, my teaching is just like using an empty fist to deceive a child. You know, when you play games with a child and pretend you've got something here. And the child goes into all kinds of um, tizzy to get you to open your hand and show what it is, and then there's nothing. Fooled. So, you, so you, you can be fooled. As long as you can be fooled. <laughs> when you can't be fooled, you don't ask the question anymore. Because it's all become clear. It's all become clear that there is no puzzle about this universe. What makes you think there are puzzles about this universe? very simple reason. You're trying to explain it. And when you explain things, what, you would, what do you mean by explanation? There are several meanings of explanation. There's really one basic meaning. But First of all, to be able to translate what is happening into terms of words or numbers. In other words, to describe. But a real explanation is not just the description. It's a description which enables us to control what we are describing. But didn't we see in the last session that to control the world is not really what we want to do? So that if all explanations have as their function enabling us to control things, then maybe an explanation isn't what we wanted. And furthermore, you can very simply see that what makes things complicated is explaining them. When somebody explains to you how a flower works, and he's a great botanist, and analyzes all the innards of a flower, and shows the channels, the fibers, the processes of reproduction, and uh, so on that go on in it, everybody stands fascinated. Said, how complicated that is. How clever God must have been to create that flower, to have all that complexity going. It isn't complicated at all. It's only complicated when you start thinking about it. Because the vehicle of words is a very clumsy one. And when you try to talk about the processes of nature, what is complicated is not the processes of nature but trying to put them into words. That's as complicated as trying to drink up the ocean with a fork. Takes forever. And so this intense complexity that we see in everything is created by our attempt to analyze it all. And so what we do is, you see, when we analyze, we use our eyes and ears as scalpels. And we dissect everything. And we have to put a label on every piece we chop off. And so we scalpelize and we get it right down to atoms getting finer and finer, and we suddenly thought, well, we've got to the end of it, because the word atom means what is not cuttable, atomos. Uh, But then we found we could cut the atom. And lo and behold, big fleas had little fleas upon their backs to bite them. And it goes on forever. There is no end to the minuteness which you can unveil through physical investigation. For the simple reason that the investigation itself is what is chopping things into pieces. And the sharper you can sharpen your knife, the finer you can cut it. And the knife of the intellect is very sharp indeed. And the sophisticated instruments that we can now make, there's probably no limit to it. But in a way, all that is vain knowledge. In a way. Because, you see, what it does is, it gives you the illusion that you've solved your problems. When you have controlled certain things, and you have solved certain problems, practical problems, you say, fine, more of that please. Let's go on solving problems. And then you do. And you create a world of people, as we are today, far more comfortable than people who lived in the 19th century. Just remember the the troubles of going to a dentist when you were children, or some of you when you were children, of uh, medicine, of uh, badly heated homes, of uh, all sorts of things that we don't put up with anymore. But the problem is we keep running into this thing that all constant stimulations of consciousness become unconscious. And when we take it as a matter of course to have certain comforts, then we switch the level on which we worry. When you solve a whole set of problems, people find new ones to worry about. And after a while, you begin to get that haven't we been here before feeling. (laughs) Aren't we just going round on a cycle and doing the same old thing over and over and over again because we don't realize that we're chasing our own tails by an eternally recurrent process of not knowing who you are. That is the hide-and-seek. That is the nature of what the Hindus call the Manvantara and the pralaya the period of the manvantara in which the worlds are manifested and the period of the pralaya in which the worlds are withdrawn from manifestation. In and out, in and out. Evermore came out by the same door as in I went. The thing is, to get to the point where you can see that you are doing that in every moment of your existence, with every tiny little atom of your body, you now, at this minute, you see, are the whole the whole system of ining and outing. In other words, you often think perhaps, um, maybe a long, long time ahead, I shall reach the point where I wake up from manifestation <coughs> and overcome the world illusion and discover that I am the supreme reality behind all this diversification. My friends, there is no diversification. In other words, what you call diversification is your game. In the same way as you chop the thing and then you say it is made of pieces. (laughs) Because you forget that you cut it. And so when you see the world as complicated and that there are life problems and that uh, you, you might one day succeed, See, hundreds and hundreds of people are running like mad after something that they call the, that is success and they have no idea what it is. So, in exactly the same way, the guru is keeping you running and running after spiritual attainment. You don't know what you want. It's where Krishnamurti is so clever. Because he says, if you ask me for enlightenment, how can you ask me for enlightenment? If you don't know what it is, how do you know you want it? is it any concept you have of it will be simply a way of trying to perpetuate the situation you're already in. If you think you know what you're going out for, all you're doing is you're seeking the past, what you already know, what you've already experienced. Therefore that's not it, is it? Because you say you're looking for something quite new. But what do you mean new? What's your conception of something new? Well, you figure I can only think about it in terms of something old. Something I once had. So he doesn't say anything. He doesn't indicate anything positively. Everybody says, why are you so negative? Why don't you give us something to hang on to? Well, if the simple answer is it would be spurious. You don't need anything to hang on to, you're it. You don't need a religion. But then you say, "Well, uh, well, what is all this religious stuff about then? Why don't we just forget it? You can try. By all means, just go away. Don't go to gurus. Don't go to church. Don't enter philosophical discussions. Forget it." But then you'll realize that by having consented to forget it, you're still seeking. What a trap. What can you do? You see? If you stay here and listen to me or to anyone else who comes around here, you're fooling yourself. But if you go away, you're fooling yourself too. (laughs) 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 Because you still think that's going to improve your situation. It won't. And therefore, when you discover that it doesn't, you think, well, maybe it was a mistake to go away, and you come back to the guru. And he looks at you and says, uh-uh, uh-uh, you are very undisciplined, very, uh, very uh, inferior student, and uh, you, you need to apply yourself. Well, as I explained, I explained what he's doing. But it comes down, in a way, to a sort of contest with a guru, you see. Will you call his bluff? You're afraid to. Because you might discover that if you do call his bluff, he's no better than you are. (laughs) Well, that's what you're supposed to find out. But without being cynical about it. He's as divine as you are. But you've got to call the bluff. There's going to be a showdown. And it's, it's a double bind, the whole situation is a double bind. Because it doesn't do any good to stay here and it doesn't do you any good to go away. <laughs> Either to do something about it or to do nothing about it. Now then there's something else. When you understand that and when you realize that um, there's nothing to realize, because <laughs> it's all here. Then what are you going to do? (laughs) Well, of course, this is the sense of the Zen poem. Supernatural activity and marvellous power. Drawing water, carrying fuel. Do whatever one does as a human being. (coughs) But there's a little element of Philistinism in that. It's like when a child is pestering father or mother with all sorts of questions They finally get down to the deepest metaphysical problems, they say, Oh, shut up and eat your donut." (laughs) And um, I wouldn't say that, you see, at this point. Because uh, life, as one looks at it, you see, is in fact a celebration of itself. When you look out at night at the stars and you really wonder, Good God, what is all that about? Well, it's a firework display and it's celebrating High Holy Day. Uh, It's whoopee. And the whole world is whoopee. It's a kind of exuberance. And therefore the proper function of religion is digging this. It's not seeking. It's not seeking anything but is, in a way, thanksgiving. That's why, of course, the Christians were right in calling the Mass the, the Eucharist, the thanksgiving. Only they had such a complicated way of thinking about it that nobody could understand it. So, there, in, in religion, all religious exercises, whether they are meditative or whether they are ritualistic, are whoopee. They are not something you do in order to attain anything. They are like art forms, like dancing. They are expressive of attainment, of the attainless attainment. So here's another hang-up for you. When you go to Mr. Suzuki, who runs the Zen Center, he's a good disciple of Dogen, who brought Zen, uh, a certain school of Zen to Japan, in the uh, thirteenth century. Dogen said, you can't sit and meditate unless you're already a Buddha. In which case, why meditate? Well, meditation is just the way a Buddha sits. And he called this sitting just to sit, not to attain enlightenment. The minute you do that, you see, you're not meditating. So, you only become a a good meditator if you're not looking for anything. And therefore, you realize what a great thing it is to be able to sit. And what a great thing it is not to dissect the world with your analytical intellect. To be able to look out at the water or the trees or at the floor and the light on it in front of you without calling it light or floor or trees or thinking that it has parts or thinking that uh, it's complicated, it isn't. So when you can sit without thinking, not with an empty mind mind you, I'm going back to that point, not with an empty mind, but just um, a non-analytic mind, a non-probing mind, uh, where you're not creating problems all the time, by trying to control it, by trying to control your mind, by trying to control your experience, what you see and hear, you then just simply discover that there is no way of controlling what you're experiencing because what you're experiencing is you. And to try and really fundamentally control that is just going around in a circle. So, if I were to say to you now, what you have to learn is to let it happen, that's wrong too. There's no one to let it happen. If I say to you, accept your experience, Um, be calm and open to things that, again, perpetuates the illusion that you're something different from it. So we go round and round. But if there are some people who want to get together, and, like we would get together to play poker, or to um, have a walk, go fishing, or sail a boat, if there are some people who want to get together to meditate, and to have rituals, and to chant, uh, great! It's an art form, and you can only use it and make it a good art form if you're not using it to get something. And this is what really is the bane of temples all over the world. You go into Buddhist temples where they theoretically don't believe in any god, but there are the people praying, and they are all doing it in order that we get a male child next time around or that the horse recover from a disease or that mama gets cured of the dropsy and all these petitions are going on and on and on people are always coming to the temple to ask for something. Lowbrow people for lowbrow things highbrow people for highbrow things and there all the vendors sit outside and sell souvenirs and magic and charms and all the people go in and do this and all these serious priests sitting there Really, having to keep up face and uh, say yes, uh, uh, we can provide these services. <laughs> on the other hand, if you go in to one of these temples, along with all the faithful followers, and have a ball, buy a buy a bead, buy a candle, buy a this, buy a that, buy some incense. Go in and dig this great thing going on. Salute the Buddhas or the Christ or the altars or the crucifixes or what you will, but don't take it seriously. And this is one of the great important transformations of today, in our consciousness, is that a great many people are finding out that religion is not supposed to be taken seriously. This is a shocking thing to many people. Uh, There used to be an old saying that a religion is dead when the priests laugh across the altars. That's true in one sense. When the priests know that they've got a racket going, and they don't believe one word of it, and they're laughing across the altar because of all these suckers around uh, doing it, then it's true. Uh, the religion is dead. But when the priests laugh at the altars, because they're having such fun, and because this whole scene is so beautiful, uh, well, it's the difference between some stuffy old Buddhist priest humming a sutra and Allen Ginsberg chanting a sutra. Uh, that's a thing to hear.
1: Because
0: <laughs> this priest is going, brruh, brruh, brruh. and then they go on for interminably. And it's a bore. <laughs> They're sick of it, but they get paid for it. This is magical. But when Allen Ginsberg chants a sutra, everybody gets in a circle and he gets these little bells and they get going. It's just like a it's like a um, a jam session. Where everybody is absolutely delighted, well that's the way to do it. And if you can't do it that way, forget it.